Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. And today we are back in our Road to Emmaus Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament series. And we are on session seven. Now, the fun thing about this series is I don't actually know how many final sessions there will be. So it's an adventure. So welcome to part seven of this adventure. So as always, this broadcast is supported by listeners just like you. If you'd like to help support this broadcast and keep it free, you can donate at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And with that, here is Michael in Road to Emmaus, Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament, Session 7. Hello, my friends. Thanks for joining me, Michael Lane again, Evidence for Faith, as we continue our study of the uh, lesson that I've been calling The Road to Emmaus. It's the Messianic prophecies found in the Old Covenant or Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled um, as he came as the suffering Messiah. And as we've been uh, going through this, we have just finished in the last lesson, the book of Exodus. And today we're starting, um, in this lesson, we're starting the book of Leviticus. Now, there's not a whole lot in the book of Leviticus. This is one of those books that usually people struggle with in, in reading because it has, to, it has to write off. It begins with all these sacrifices and people sort of get bogged down with all of this. But all of this is, again, it's messianic. God didn't just give offerings. There's, there's offerings that are made and the thing is each one of these offerings, each, each one has a specific detail that the Messiah fulfills in this. In other words, each one of these offerings pertains to the Messiah in some way. And basically what the book of Leviticus is, it's a, it's a handbook for priests and Levites on, I guess the easiest way to say it is to how you worship God. Many sacrifices and offering protocols are described in very, very distinct detail in this book. But as I say, one can find Jesus in each one of these offerings if you examine them carefully. And if you've read the New Covenant or the New Testament, um, you can start to see these things. And there are certain theological terms that get presented as we go through this also. And um, again, this is primarily dealing with worshiping God, um, worshiping protocols. Um, this isn't a book that is usually standing out as a messianic prophecy book, but it's there. It, I mean, there's no denying it, it's in here. So as we are going through, if you've got your notebook uh, with you, or if you're taking notes or if you're just listening, that's fine. Um, we're on number 20, our 20th prophecy. And we're going to go through these sort of quickly here in this lesson, um, these, these offerings, because as we do the offerings, um, there's going to be another lesson coming after this that will talk about the holidays and the, and the feast. But in this lesson, we're focusing in the book of Leviticus on the offerings. Now, these offerings are also mentioned frequently throughout the Bible and in other places in the Torah, but also throughout the Tanakh, you hear these offerings being mentioned and stuff, and even in some cases in the New Covenant. But as we get into this one, number 20, and it's the first chapter. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. That would take a lot of time. You can read it on your own. The first chapter in the book of Leviticus. And what we're going to see is that there's five offerings that are, are described here. The first three are really unique because they're voluntary. In other words, they're not required. It's when you sort of feel like 
you, uh, you want to do this, you go and do this. Um, so you have these three, and then there's gonna be the last two which are required when you do certain things. So we'll get into those, but we're not gonna get deeply into this. I'm just gonna try and pull out things having to do with the Messiah on this. But anyway, as we go, number 20, it's chapter one of Leviticus, and I'm entitling this, The Burnt Offering. The Burnt Offering. Now this, as I said, this is a voluntary offering that's used to cover sins in general, general sins. Just, I mean, we all know that we sin. So in the old covenant days, you knew you sin. Okay, it's, boy, I, I really need to, you know, to, to get rid of some of my sins here and clear, clear my conscience and clear my, my standing with God. So I'm gonna perform a burnt offering. And you hear about this frequently done. Uh, one specific detail pertaining to the animal um, that is uh, worthy of observing in this is found in verses eight and nine. It talks about how the animal, uh, when it's being sacrificed, is arranged. That it includes the head, the fat, the inner parts, and the legs um, are what are described here. Now, show you something fascinating about this. I remember back in, I think it was in 1980s when I first came across this um, from um, Dr. Dan Hayden and listening to him speak. One time he showed me this and it just blew my mind. It was like, wow, for, for over a week, I just could not get this off my mind. The animal that is being used represents the sinner. Okay, most people get that. You take the animal. It's not that the animal did something wrong. We're, we're actually doing a sacrifice and this we're transferring ourselves basically and symbolically to this, this animal represents us. Now, first thing they do is they remove blood. They, they take the animal, kill it, and they, they collect blood. Um, blood, as we're gonna see even um, many times, and we've already covered to a degree, blood is used for forgiveness of sins. And so we see that aspect there. Um, and it gets used in this offering. But the other parts, that's what I wanna draw your attention to. I mean, most people catch the blood because we, um, you, you catch this and it says in, in the book of Hebrews that blood is necessary for forgiveness of sin and stuff. But the thing is, we get that, but why these four parts? Why is the animal separated, um, has its head separated from the body, its fat um, around the kidneys separated from the animal, the inner parts, um, the visceral organs and stuff, and then you have the legs. The legs, the four legs are cut off and used. Well, you ready? You ready to be shocked? This is so cool. Um, the parts mentioned represent aspects of how we are to worship God. Remember, this animal represents us. And so now we're dividing ourselves into four parts to worship God. First of all, the head is mentioned. Well, what is the head? Well, the head of the animal mimics our mind because that's where our brain is. So what does this represent? What are you offering when you offer uh, this type of an offering to God? When you come to God to offer a burnt offering, what are you doing? In this aspect, the head is representing my thoughts. God I'm gonna worship you and I offer to you my thoughts. What goes on in my brain? Help me to be careful what goes in there, what I allow my eyes to put in there. So please, I'm offering you my thoughts. Makes sense, right? 
The next one's a little hard for us in this Western culture to distinguish, but they would separate the fat. Now, the fat is the, the reserve of uh, the animal, and physiologically speaking, it's our reserves. It's also an insulation. It is something that cushions and protects. It's very important. Uh, you remove the fat, total fat from a person, like an anorexia nervosa or some person dies. This actually in our culture is hard to understand, but in, in um, the Eastern culture, it wasn't so, so different. They would understand it to mean the soul. Fat represented the soul. And some people, they have a lot of fat. I guess I got a lot of soul. But anyway, the part of the animal was the fat. It mimics our soul. So what are we doing? Lord, I'm offering you my soul. I'm offering you my prosperity. I'm offering you my reserve. God, it's yours. My most precious commodity I have, as Jesus said, is our soul. I want to offer you my soul. The third part of the animal, when we take the animal and we transfer our, symbolically ourselves to it, is the inner parts, like the heart. It mimics our heart. And now in ancient times, they used to think that the seat of human emotion was actually the heart, though some cultures thought it was the kidneys, others thought it was the intestines or the colon. Yeah, um, well, today we know that it, the heart is primarily just a, a skeletal, or a, um, not skeletal, but it's a, a muscle um, that, that pumps throughout the body. It's got its own little brain in it and everything like that. Uh, SA node, AV nodes and stuff, uh, Perkins G fibers that help contract it and it can beat, and that's why it can beat outside of the body uh, when removed. Um, it doesn't die right away, but the heart, um, we generally think of giving our heart is our emotions, our affections. That's what this goes with. Could you imagine getting a, a card in the mail at Valentine's Day? What, what do we do? We hand out cards with hearts on them, right? We buy chocolates in a box shaped like a heart. Could you imagine if we still continued to think, as some ancient cultures did, that it was the colon? The colon, the large intestine, was the seat of the emotions? Could you imagine getting a box of chocolates shaped in the shape of a colon? Or writing inside, you open up this card that's shaped like a colon, and you open it up, and it says, um, "Be my Valentine. I love you from the bottom of my colon." That just that just doesn't sound very romantic. I'm, I mean, that's going to put a damper on your romantic evening and your date and stuff. So, yeah, it's so much nicer to think about the heart that way. But the whole point is, what are we offering to God? What's this representing? Obviously, our emotion, our affection. God, I want to give you my emotions. And then the last part, and this one's really interesting. They separated the legs. Now, what's in the legs? Well, it represents, obviously, our arms and legs, the animal's legs. What's in there? Well, there's skeletal muscle, obviously, and there's skeletal bone. So these are the muscles that you control to do things. And, and it takes some learning. When an infant is born, he does not have really good grasp of um, neural connections to all this stuff. So they have a hard time grasping a finger right at first and, and, and being able to walk. It's stuff you have to learn. And their behaviors of a small child gets them into a lot of trouble. Those little legs, those little hands and arms get them often into a lot of trouble.
Um, I've got, I've had three, three kids and I've got grandkids, seven grandkids. And I'm telling you, um, one of my grandkids, he's constantly, uh, he was just over for Christmas. Um, and he's like two years old. And the thing is, don't touch the Christmas tree. And as he's looking at me and I'm saying this, don't touch the ornaments on the Christmas tree. He goes over, I got a glass bell hanging there and he grabs that with one hand and sort of turns and looks at me. And, and then he grabs uh, another glass ornament and I'm saying, no, don't touch those. And he's just totally disobeying and just starts banging these two things together. And I'm like, no, no. What's getting him in trouble? It's what's the actual thing. Yes, his mind is controlling his actions and stuff, but what's doing it? It's the skeletal muscle, his hands and the muscles in his arms and his hands and stuff. That's what's getting him in trouble. In other words, it's his behavior. The way he is doing things, his behavior, his actions uh, are what is being controlled here. So the legs of the organism, of the animal, when you bring it to the sacrifice and they separate the legs out, the legs represent our strength. And our strength controls our behavior. I mean, you can't write your name with a pen without using skeletal muscles and your limbs. You can't walk to the refrigerator. You can't walk to the bathroom. You can't walk, uh, get up in the middle of the night and get out of your bed and take a walk for a glass of water unless you use the legs and, and your arms. So everything that you do, your actions is represented by these legs. Thus, when we do this, we are saying, Lord, I'm offering you my behavior, my actions. I sacrifice this to you. Now, isn't it interesting? Because we have the mimic here is the mind, the soul, the heart, and the strength. Now, go back for a moment to Mark chapter 12. And if you have your Bibles and if you're looking, maybe you know the story. You go to Mark chapter 12, you're going to see something fascinating. There's a scribe who comes to Jesus and he's been listening to an argument going on and he's seeing how Jesus is really wise in handling these other scribes and, and religious leaders with their spiritual questions. And so this scribe turns to Jesus and says, what's the most important of all the commandments. And he says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Isn't it interesting? And that's in Mark 12, 29 and 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In other words, he just described the burnt offering. And what do we offer to God? Voluntarily, we give him this sacrifice. Jesus is the fulfillment of this, of course, but Jesus uses this, this whole thing. He is the one who is our animal who sacrificed himself for us. So that's number 20. That's chapter one, the burnt offering. Let's go to the second one. Uh, this will be number 21 in our prophecies as we move through. And we just are in the same book, of course, we're in Leviticus. This is chapter two, and it's called the grain offering. Chapter two, the grain offering. Now, this one too is a voluntary offering, and this one involves different ingredients, but the purpose of it is to show honor and respect for God the Father, for what he has done for us. You want to give um, a grain offering, you want to give that as a thankfulness offering. You want to honor God with this. God, you're so awesome. You've done this. I want to do this for you. So you would have this grain offering. 
In comparison to Jesus, the grain offering is actually a prefigure of Jesus because in this one, you take the grain and you're making loaves of bread. Jesus himself called himself the bread of life. And so um, it's bread. But now this bread, notice that in this chapter, it says that the grain uh, is made into bread with no leaven. In other words, no yeast. Yeast is symbolic of sin. So we're not going to have sin in this loaf. Jesus is the bread of life. It's unleavened. There is no sin. So no yeast is used in the loaf. Yeast represents sin. Jesus is sinless. So when Jesus calls himself the bread of life, he is saying that he is the sacrifice. He is the ultimate source of this sacrifice. He has no sin and uh, he would be sinless. And we know that Jesus is, again, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus never sinned. So that's the grain offering. We go to number 22. This is chapter three. We're just moving right through this. Chapter three. This one has a couple different names. It's sometimes in some translations, it's called the peace offering. Uh, In other ones, it's called the fellowship offering. So this is our 22nd prophecy. Um, This is also a voluntary offering. Now, this one is really fascinating because it it shows peace and fellowship with God. That's what this was about. And this one was to express, the reason a person would do this was to express, again, gratitude for what God has done for us. A little bit different than the grain offering. The grain offering was more for showing honor. This one is specifically... I want to have, I'm so thankful for God, even though he's a holy God and I'm not holy, I can have peace with him. What he has done, he allows me to have peace with him. This too is often God has been calling these things a sweet savor or a sweet aroma offering. This one is also, but in this one, get now what happens here. The person who's doing the offering, the, the person um, who's, who's going to actually perform this, Um, or go to the temple or the tabernacle for this offering. He, the priest that's involved, and of course God is present um, all around, but he was present, he he was manifest in the temple in the Holy of Holies. He's also manifest in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. God is though everywhere and God. So you have three people, the offerer, the priest, and God. And the thing is, they symbolically all sit down and have a meal together. Yes, this is an offering a family would eat with a priest and acknowledging the presence of God there also. Why did God make this one, make this, uh, give us this type of offering? It was to sh- show that he wants to have fellowship with us. God created man to have fellowship with him. He didn't do this with other animals, uh, any of the other animals and stuff. Man is a specific creation made in his own image to have this close fellowship. We are not the descendant of some type of primate. Um, We are specially created by God. Oh, now people will say, well, DNA, uh, scientists say the DNA um, is like our DNA and that of a a chimp is like 98% the same. Well, actually, that is not really correct whatsoever because they're only looking at a small section of the entire DNA genome, a small little part of it. Um, 
and they're ignoring the majority of it. The majority, uh, the majority of the DNA is not what they're looking at. They're making a comparison um, that has uh, a small um, uh, amount compared to the rest of the DNA. And the thing is, um, that small amount, yeah, in that small little section there, like uh, of the of our DNA, chimps and us will have some similarities. They have hair, we have hair. They have four limbs, we have four limbs. Uh, we have two eyes, they have two eyes. They have a nose, we have a nose. Uh, they have a tongue, we have a tongue. Um, but boy, there are so many differences. The larynx, for instance, in chimps is so different. The structure, um, they can't talk. And believe me, scientists have been trying to get them to talk. They can't talk. They don't have the right kind of structure. They don't have the right neural complex uh, going from the, the larynx into the brain or from the voice box that, um, and stuff to the brain. It's not the same. There are so many differences in us. Um, so there are going to be some similarities, yes. But the majority, about <laughs> it, the, the, the majority, the vast majority, I don't know the per exact percentage, but it is um, like about 98% or so, or not maybe not much, that much, but like 95% of the total DNA, we are totally different. Matter of fact, I was just reading a research paper the other day on um, some genetic studies on the DNA of octopuses, and this one zoologist was pointing out that um, he discovered that in studying the, the genome of an octopus, a special species, I don't remember which one it was, compared to human DNA, he thought, yeah, let's, let's just compare them. And he says what he found amazing is that we have more similarities in our non-functioning DNA, the, um, the what sometimes um, mistakenly called junk DNA, um, and that um, octopuses have more in common with us than we have with chimps. So now what? Are they going to start saying that we evolved from octopuses because our DNA is a little bit more similar to us, the junk DNA, than what you see in this? It, it just boggles the mind. Our DNA, what they commonly call junk DNA, and there is no thing really called junk DNA. It's all functional stuff. But ours is so different than everything else. But I know I'm way off on a rabbit trail here, but the point is I'm trying to make, we are a special creation from God, and God wants to have fellowship with us. You don't see God sitting down and having fellowship meals with um, orangutans, or you don't see him having fellowship meals with ants, or grasshoppers, or corals, um, or jellyfish, or, or trees, and plants, and algae. No, with man, he offers this. We are special. God wants to have fellowship with man. Jesus took this to a beautiful level. The Messiah, when he came, took this to a beautiful level. We have, in this, you see, we have God, we have man, the person who's doing the offering, and then you have the priest. Christ represents the priest. The Messiah would represent the priest. God the Father is still present. We have man is present. And the priest is, is a precursor here of who the Messiah would be in doing this. And it's the Messiah, then, that satisfies and, and gives us peace as the priest is the functioning person through this thing, the Messiah would do this also. And we see this in the upper room. The most beautiful discourse having to do with this, this type of an offering takes place with Jesus eating a fellowship meal, um, like a Seder meal, with his disciples before he goes to the cross. You, I'm not talking about the, the structure here of you know, uh, and the communion service itself. I'm talking about just the general fellowship that Jesus had with his disciples at mealtimes. And we are given one example, which there were many, but we are given one very detailed description of this by John, who was present. You see, Jesus fulfills his role as our priest. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh 
the divinity or the dividing wall of hostility. This verse is saying the Messiah is going to break down the wall of hostility and give us peace with the Father and we can have fellowship together. That's what this is all about. Matter of fact, you could take a look at Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also obtain access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Again, we have peace with God like this. And by the way, what did the angels say when Jesus was born in Luke chapter 2, 14? It, they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, peace among those with whom he's pleased. The Messiah wants us to experience fellowship, peace, fellowship with God the Father. We just came out of a holiday season, and I know that some families, I've already heard from, um, from some people, um, that their family get together for Christmas or New Year. That is not a joyful time, even Thanksgiving. Not a thankful time, not a peaceful time, because there's such discourse in the family that some people in one family was telling me they actually ate parts of the meal in separate rooms. Oh, that is so sad. That is not what we have here with God. We have the holy God. We have us, us who are sinful. But the thing is, we have the Messiah who comes and gives us peace. Through the Messiah, we can have peace with God. Isn't it be great that we can all get together and have peace like that? It's a shame that families today can't do that in some circumstances. But anyway, let's move on. Number 23, Prophecy 23. This is chapter 4, the sin offering the sin offering. Now, unlike the other three that were voluntary that you did when you wanted to, this one was required. These last two are actually required. This one is required. A sin offering was required. It does not mention that it would be a sweet savor also to God. Nope. The other ones, those were going to be sweet savor, a sweet, a great aroma God loves. This one, it doesn't say that. Instead, this is for, this whole thing, this sin offering can be put into one term, our atonement, our atonement, um, to be declared not guilty here. It's to make amends. Uh, atonement is to make amends for the sins that we do. And this is what this offering is all about. Uh, it covers what we are. We are sinners. Um, an interesting aspect of this offering, it was to show rejection. Rejection from what? Sin. We keep forgetting today that God is holy. Many people today just cannot catch that. They often speak on and dwell upon and preach upon the love of God, which is true. God is love. But as most theologians will, will say, and these are theologians that often can't agree on the color of an orange, the best description of God is holy. And having a holy God, we as sinners cannot come into this presence. We are rejected by God. Well, this is to cover this. Um, but this offering shows the rejection because this offering is a little different from a burnt offering because it says in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 12, also again in verse 21, they would take the animal and they would take it outside of camp to burn. It says, and even in verse 11, but the skin of the bull and all of its flesh 
and its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull shall he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap <clears throat> and shall burn it up on fire of wood. So this is done outside. Outside the camp. Outside the tabernacle. Outside the temple. This was done like this. How does this pertain to Jesus? What is this telling us about the sacrifice of Jesus and about the Messiah? <clears throat> Excuse me. In the book of Hebrews, we see this. The writer of Hebrews takes this sacrifice and actually talks about it in a way because he says in Hebrews 13, verses 10 through 13, it actually says, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. Jesus was crucified outside the city gate. Um, this is so interesting because, as you know, I, or if you don't know, I lead tours. Um, I have led tours and co-led tours to Israel. And one of the places that has been discovered um, is what's called the Geneth Gate. And that is the one mentioned in Scripture, that outside the Geneth Gate, it talks about in the Gospels. Jesus was, uh, went through this. Now, the Geneth Gate was close to the temple. And, um, and today, many tourists... Um, will go to Jerusalem uh, and they will go to what's called the Garden Tomb or Gordon's Calvary, which is on the north side of the old city in just uh, across from the Muslim section in there um, of the old city of Jerusalem. You go outside Damascus Gate, you just keep walking out there through the suburbs and you come to what's called the Garden Tomb, Gordon's Calvary and stuff. And they say, oh, this is the place where Jesus was buried. I will tell you, it's beautiful. I've been there. Um, when I've been there, it, it's a beautiful garden. And Jesus, it does say in, in the Bible, um, in the Gospels, that this area was a garden where he was buried and stuff. And it is a beautiful garden, very tranquil. Um, when I've been there, there's always been one or two small church groups that have had choirs and they're singing hymns in the background. Beautiful plants are where it's kept immaculately clean. Um, it's, it's a beautiful place. And then Gordon's Calvary is just a short walk from there. The thing is, I can tell you with all certainty, this is not where Jesus was buried because the tomb that is there um, is not a first century Jewish tomb. The structure, the architecture of it shows, and the style of it shows that this is an Iron Age tomb, probably Iron Age II, dating back maybe around the time of King Hezekiah or Josiah, but it's an old, old covenant tomb. It's not a new tomb. And Jesus, of course, was buried in a new tomb. It's stated... Um, unequivocally in the scripture, in the Gospels, that he was put into a new tomb. And if you want to get more information on this, you can go to the book, um, my book I wrote called More Stones Bear Witness, um, Archaeology of Jerusalem. I have a whole chapter about this and describing why this, um, the garden tomb is not the right place. Um, so where was Jesus buried? Well, we don't know 100% certain, but about a 97% chance we can tell is probably where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre sits. And uh, people immediately, when I've taken tours to Israel, people will say, well, wait a minute, that can't be. Um, I mean, I can easily explain to you why the garden tomb is not the right place. Like I say, from structure and archeology, span we know that. It's quite simple to explain that with people standing there, or if you look at the book, you can look at the pictures. The thing is, um, 
the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre sits inside the city gates, the old city wall today. So people commonly will say, well, it can't be this because it says in Hebrews that he was crucified outside the city wall. Church of the Holy Sepulchre sits inside it. Well, the, those are not the original walls at the time of Christ. No, it's not, that's not it. And um, where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, because the Romans kept such distinct and clear records on this, there's a very good probability that is the place, um, though it's been decorated and carved up and made into more of a shrine than anything else today. That is likely where this took place. And there is the Geneth Gate very close to there. Today, the Geneth Gate sits underneath a shopping strip, a shopping mall area. But when I was last there, um, archeologists were, were excavating the Geneth Gate about 75 feet underground. And there was a ladder there, and I led a number of people in my group down this ladder to actually see the outline of the gate that the archaeologists were clearing out. So it's over there, and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is very close by, but it's on the outside of where this gate would be. Thus this fits. The writer of Hebrews is telling us Jesus, the Messiah, would be a sin offering, and he would be um, his sacrifice would be outside the um, the walls of Jerusalem, and that's exactly what happened, um, as we see here. Um, he was treated just like an animal. Um, Jesus was outside the city walls, which takes us to uh, number twenty-four, and this is the last one in this this um, lesson here today. Number twenty-four. It's chapter five, and this one's called the guilt offering. The guilt offering. Now, this this too is a required a required offering. What's its purpose? It was to make amends. Make amends for what we have done wrong. The other one was for atonement, to cover our sins. This one is to make amends for what we have done to God or, or done to our neighbor. We've done to somebody. And when we realize that we have done this sin, we are supposed to go do this immediately. Uh, now, some translations, I will tell you, will call it the trespass offering. It's, it's the same thing as the guilt offering. They just have different names. Um, but the whole point of this is to reconnect sinful man to our holy God. That's what its point, the whole point is. And Jesus um, is taking this offering and the Messiah would do it and remove our sin. As we know in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified so we've got the sin part, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's the Messiah. Now get this, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, don't let the word propitiation scare you. That's a theological term, basically what it means. The definition of it is it's the act of appeasing a person's anger by offering a gift. So there it is. And it even says Paul had wrote that his grace as a gift. He talks about this gift and he uses the word propitiation right in here. Um, and propitiation is received how? By faith. This is the whole salvation thing right here. Um, and this is this awesome um, how the propitiation, this is an offering, um, this guilt offering to appease an angry God, um, to appease God for what we have done to make him angry. That's what it is. And so um, it's a gift that you give to God. And so that's what it is. And it's the blood. And how do we receive it? We do it by faith. And that's the Greek word, pishtuo, meaning to put our trust and our faith in.
But I want to show you just right here at the end here, one more interesting thing in prophecy about this dealing with the Messiah, this offering. I mean, this is really interesting. If you look at uh, Leviticus chapter 5, um, and you skip down to verse 15, you're going to read something really interesting. If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally, that's the key thing for this one, in any of the holy things of the Lord, in other words, if you sin by doing something wrong according to his word, he shall bring to the Lord as a as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for the guilt offering do you get that you're supposed to bring the proper value of what your animal's worth in silver not in gold not in bronze not in copper it had to be in silver so for this sacrifice for propitiation of our sins, it had to be paid for also with a monetary gift of silver. Now, maybe you've caught this already. This is so cool. The animal had to be sacrificed in value of silver, had to be paid for. And now, look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 16, and see how this messianic prophecy applied to Jesus. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. Jesus, like any other sin or guilt offering, had to be paid for with silver. Isn't that cool? Oh, it is so interesting to see this. I love how this all fits together. This is not accident. This is not um, something that just, you know, is a coincidence. This was all God planning everything out. And these, these offerings, what I hope you've gained from this today, these offerings are just not offerings. They're, they're things that are pointing directly to what the Messiah's roles are going to be, what he's going to do. It is so cool to see this. And by them doing these offerings, they should have acknowledged and been able to see that the Messiah would catch this. But as we know, they didn't quite catch it all. Even, even Nicodemus didn't catch all of this because Jesus was, was amazed and even says to Nicodemus, you're the teacher of the, of the Jews and yet you don't understand this? They didn't. They didn't catch it. But oh my gosh, how the Holy Spirit enlightens us to be able to see things. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this lesson uh, today. And I want you to, to please contact us if you have um, uh, any comments or anything like that. And again, look over these things. It's fascinating. And I sure hope that you will um, check out other things on our website. Uh, I love having you here. Love having people uh, coming in and, and listening, sitting down with these podcasts. And just thank you so much. And if, if God puts it upon your heart sometime to uh, maybe to help us and join our ministry in prayer, we'd love to hear from you. Please pray for us. Prayer is a very powerful tool, one not used very often. And also, we do have expenses in trying to, to do all this and, and keep things up. Um, um, we would really appreciate if God would put upon your heart for you to, uh, to help us out. And there's a place on our website that you can go to help support our ministry, and we would thank you. But even if you can't, that's fine. 
Um, we don't do this trying to make money. This is not our purpose. Yes, to do the ministry does require money in this in today's world, but our whole purpose is um, we're not pocketing. I don't have an elaborate salary. I'm doing this in the basement of my house even. Um, and so I, I want to thank you for joining us and praying for us. God bless until we see you again. Take care. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.